Well, church, John chapter 13. If you have a Bible, you could flip there if you haven't already. If you have a bulletin, the entire text will be there. So you'll want to open it up in some form or fashion. We've seen the first 12 chapters of this great gospel. Jesus do a public ministry. Jesus publicly before all peoples preached sermons to large crowds. He performed miracle after miracle. But that public ministry is now coming to a close. It has now come to a close and his march to the cross has begun. Chapters 13 through 17 is often called the upper room discourse. I took a whole seminary class on this very section taught by then 90 plus year old Dr. J. Dwight Pentecost. This class was worth my entire seminary tuition combined. He would just walk in, open up his Bible, and he would spend two hours with us every week just going verse by verse through these chapters, through this glorious text. You could hear a pin drop in that classroom. Jesus here in these chapters, he's with his disciples. This is an intimate look at the final hours of Jesus's life. And we get to be flies on the wall. We get to be flies on the wall as we hear Jesus speak his final words to his disciples and to pray a final prayer in John 17, often called the high priestly prayer. We get to be flies on the wall during this most intimate setting in the, in the upper room, in this last supper. Today we'll look at the first 17 verses that were read to us and our outline has four sections we'll look at them one at a time if you're taking notes I've just broken the text down into four separate sections so first number one we're gonna look at confidence confidence in verses 1 through 3 look at verse 1 now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Well, the Passover celebrated God's faithfulness in bringing his people out of Egypt. They were in slavery and God brought them out. And during the last of ten plagues, God set upon Egypt the Israelites were directed to paint blood on their doorposts. These homes God passed over, only striking dead the Egyptian firstborns. God then delivered his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea and Exodus. This feast of celebration approached and Jesus knew his hour, a phrase that in John's gospel always points to the cross, points to his hour of death, points to that hour where he would hang on a cross. Now, we can't properly understand what Jesus is doing here apart from his impending death. It's time. Jesus would part back to the Father. But this wasn't a forever goodbye, and it really wasn't even a goodbye, because even after his resurrection and ascension, it's true, his human nature left the earth. But Matthew 28 reminds us that Jesus is always with us, that he will be with us to the end, even the end of the age. And he will indeed come back one day. He is with us, and he will be with us. But until that time, Jesus loved his own. That's his people symbolized by these men 
to the end. Then it's a deep, deep love of Jesus shown now in an act of love revealed on the cross as the pinnacle of love. Look at verse 2. Something else is going on here. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Let's back up a little bit. It's dinner time. Luke 22, just for context, you can read that chapter later on today. Luke 22 gives us a little more context. It tells us what's going on here in these moments. There's an argument. What kind of argument do you ask? Well, let's just say they're not arguing about who is eating all the chicken adobo or the palak paneer or jollof rice, as important as a question as that is. No, they debated, check this out, they're here towards the end of Jesus' life, and guess what? They were debating who was the greatest. This was the argument, this was the discussion that that the disciples were having right now, right before this time. This seems absurd, doesn't it? They had been with Jesus up to even three years. Think about it. They're with Jesus. If you're passing the biryani with Jesus and an argument breaks out as to who is the greatest, here's the answer. You vote for Jesus. Jesus is the greatest. He's got the best CV in the group. They followed Jesus these years. They saw his example. They saw him preach sermons. They watched him perform miracles. Now in the very last hours of Jesus' life, they're arguing about which one of them is better. Set that context with what Jesus is about to do there in the upper room. And it's quite the contrast. Think about what Jesus has already done. Jesus, the God-man, God in the flesh, fully man, fully God, left heaven. He left his throne. He was born a baby. He was a teenager, need I say more. A true human being. God in the flesh going through all that we've gone through. These men wanted to be great, but right in their presence was the greatest. One disciple at dinner, Judas, even had plans to betray Jesus. The hour had come. But in verse 3, there's a confidence that Jesus has. Look at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Jesus had confidence in a plan that had been set in place from eternity past. Often called the covenant of redemption. The hour of his death arrived, but Jesus knew he'd come from the Father and he was going back to the Father. This was his confidence. He's on death's doorstep, but the Father had given all things into his hands. Jesus was sovereign. Jesus was in complete and utter control. All things were given into his hands. Not some things, not a few things, not partial things, not a couple things, not most things, but all things. The same Jesus who holds the whole world together, the same Jesus who holds the whole world in his hands is the same Jesus who's about to show his love on the cross. But first we get a a glimpse of this love at the dinner table. That's the second point of the sermon, condescension. 
We've seen Jesus has this confidence, but now we're going to see condescension in verses 4 and 5. But before we can feel the strength of, of those verses, I need to set even more context. We know already what the disciples were doing as dinner approached. Well, let me give us a little cultural context in the first century. In the first century, you wouldn't just come home from work, go into your house, take a shower, change your clothes, and go off to dinner. You, you didn't have a shower at home. You didn't have running water at home. You go to the public bath to bathe. Each village, most villages would have one underground, and they had underground fires to keep the baths warm above. You'd stop by, you'd bathe, you'd wash, then you'd put your clothes, you'd put your sandals back on, and you'd go off to dinner. There were no paved streets, dust, sand, animal droppings everywhere. By the time you got to dinner, your feet would be dusty again. They'd be a bit dirty again. Now, this was a big deal because there were no chairs, and so they reclined at table. Their feet would be right out. Upon arrival at a dinner, a gracious host would have a, a, a station there to wash your feet. Because when you arrived to dinner, you couldn't go back to the bathhouse to wash your feet. You're stuck with your dirty feet. So there would be a servant posted with a bucket of water and a sponge. And as you walked in, that servant would wash your feet. Or at the very least, there would be a station where you could wash your own feet. See, this job was for the lowest servant. It was illegal for a Jewish servant to even do this task. This task was below a Jewish servant. It was illegal to force them to do this. No one wanted this job. Now here in the desert, we've seen some dirty feet. I love my sons with all my heart. But some evenings, when I look at the bottom of their feet, all I see is black. Parents, you probably have seen this. I don't know how they get that way. But by the end of the day, sometimes my kids have black feet. Well, these men are in the upper room. It's the Last Supper. Feet are dirty. Perhaps men are looking around. Where's the servants? Where's the water? Uh, where's the soap? Where's the sponge? Well, what do they do? Well, they do nothing. None of them raised their hand to sign up for such a task. Now remember the context again. Remember what they had just been talking about. Who's the greatest? I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. I've done this. I've done that. They come in. There's no servant. That's the context of what's happening here. And it's right then that Jesus does this. Verse 4. He, speaking of Jesus... He rose from supper. So they had already been sitting down. They had been reclining there at table. He rose from supper. This is Jesus, the God-man, fully God, fully man. And then he stunned the whole room as he laid aside his outer garments. Now, a Jewish man would wear an inner tunic and an outer robe. Servants only wore the undergarment. Jesus is identifying here with a servant. He took out his outer garments. He laid them aside. He put them away. And at the end of verse 4, taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then the big shocker, verse 5, he poured water into a basin and began to wash 
the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And this is simply astonishing. Jesus moves from man to man until he washes 24 feet. The table would have only been about 20 centimeters tall, no chairs. Jesus would have had to bend all the way down, possibly even on his knees. Now, no Jew would have done this. Not even a servant would have done this. Obviously, the disciples hadn't even done it. But at this dinner, the very Son of God was condescending, washing the feet of the very men that he created. John and James's feet, the sons of thunder, as we heard last week. He washed Andrew's feet, Thaddeus's feet, Matthew the tax collector's feet, Simon the zealot's feet, Nathaniel's feet, Philip's feet. James, the son of Alphaeus's feet, doubting Thomas's feet, and even the feet of Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray him, the, the maker of the Milky Way. I mean, Jesus, the creator of all things, the maker of the Milky Way, the creator and sustainer of all things, washes the feet of these men one by one by one. Jesus descended from the throne room of God, now kneeling on the ground, scrubbing the feet, scrubbing the feet of his creation. And oh, I missed one. If you were listening carefully, maybe you caught which disciple I failed to name. Jesus also, also washed Simon Peter's feet. But there, there's some confusion here with Peter, isn't there? And that's the, the third point. We've seen confidence. We've seen condescension. Third, we'll see confusion. We have some good alliteration for you today. We've been lacking alliteration the last several weeks. So four C's today. The third is confusion, verses 6 through 11. And I love the apostle Peter. I love him. I think he's my favorite. He's always sticking his foot in his mouth, isn't he? Saying crazy things. Those of us big mouths like Peter, there's hope for us, isn't there? I love Peter. He's my favorite. Peter's probably been watching Jesus wash feet already. I don't know what number Peter was in the lineup. Who knows what was going on in his mind, but we get a taste of it, don't we? Right here in the scriptures. Verse 6, Peter speaks up, Lord, do you wash my feet? No, Peter is also Captain Obvious here. What else is Jesus going to do? He's certainly not going to read them a bedtime story. What does he have? A towel? A bucket? He's been washing feet. But Jesus, are you going to wash my feet? Yes, Einstein, I'm going to wash your feet. Verse 7, Jesus says, Peter, I know you don't get it right now. But you will. Just hang on with me. Just hang with me a little longer. It'll be clear in just a few days. But Peter keeps arguing with Jesus. Never a good idea. Just FYI. Verse 8. Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. Okay. Just a pastoral note. Arguing with your fellow disciples about who's the greatest. Not a good idea. 
But telling Jesus that he doesn't know what he's doing, a really, really not so good idea. But Peter does just that. At the end of verse 8, Jesus responds to Peter's not so good idea. Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now to have no share with Jesus means to not belong to him. Foot washing here symbolizes the washing necessary for the forgiveness of sins. It's the anticipation of Jesus' death for his people by which sins are actually washed away. We sang earlier this morning, what can wash away my sin? Nothing, nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Well, Peter wakes up, verse 9, well, Lord, not my feet only, my hands, my head. Now, if this is the case, Jesus, don't just wash my feet, wash everything, my head, my hands, in between my fingers, in the back of my ears, wash it all. <laughs> I love Peter. Have I said that already? I love Peter. Verse 10, Jesus said, now, Jesus is very gentle with Peter, isn't he? Jesus is, is really quite gentle. This is a sweet reminder for each of us just how patient and how gentle he is with us when we're confused. It's a sweet reminder of how patient he is with those of us with big mouths. Peter, Peter, the one who has bathed, doesn't need to wash again except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Now the point Jesus was making is, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. In the context of the meal, it means you don't sit at this table with me if I don't wash your feet. Jesus is also applying foot washing another way. Those who've been washed through Jesus once for all death also need daily cleansing from their sin, sins, symbolizing by the frequent need to wash their feet. Just like my boys get a case of the grubby feet every once in a while, we need a daily cleansing of our sins. Repentance happens once and for all at salvation. Yes, you repent, you believe, you trust in Jesus, you're saved. But even as Christians, we continue to live a life of repentance and confession. Even today, as Alan led us in a confession of our sins, this is what we do regularly as Christians. A Christian is one who lives a life of continued repentance. Peter is asking to go back to the bathhouse. Jesus says, you've already bathed. All you need is your feet cleaned. Well, the spiritual point is you don't get saved over and over again, but you do need to be right with Jesus. You do need to be in fellowship with Jesus. If you're saved, you're saved. But there's a problem at the end of verse 10 and 11. Jesus says, not all of you are clean. This, of course, is not talking about feet. Jesus had washed all of their feet, even Judas's feet. But he's not spiritually clean. Obviously, it seems the disciples didn't understand what he was talking about. In the other Gospels, they seem to be shocked that one of them would betray Jesus. Who is it? Is it you? Is it you? They couldn't believe it would have been one of them. They would have been shocked that it was Judas. Think about it. The trusted treasurer of the group. 
the one with the money bag. He looked good on the outside, an honored one, an honored task. It looked like Judas was in fellowship with Jesus, but at the same time was scheming behind the scenes. Jesus is applying this figuratively. All feet are clean, but there's one here who's not spiritually cleaned. The disciples were altogether confused. Wait, Jesus washed our feet, but one of us is still dirty. What does this mean? Well, we know what they didn't know. We know what they didn't know at that particular time, that Judas was about to betray Jesus. All 12 of these men were with Jesus, hearing sermons, eating meals, witnessing miracles. These men watched Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They were there. They may have been with him, but they weren't all with him. What does this mean for us? Well, many things, just a few comments. Looking like a Christ follower doesn't save you. Looking good doesn't make you a Christian. Walking in and attending a church service like this doesn't make you a Christian. Any more than standing in your garage for an hour makes you into a car. It just doesn't work. It gets pretty hot in there. Having a particular passport doesn't make you a Christian. No one is born a Christian. Having Christian parents doesn't make you a Christian. As if salvation is somehow just passed down in your parents' genes. Doing good works, doing even ministry doesn't make you a Christian. This is a scary reality. It means you could have the appearance of following Jesus, be around followers of Jesus, act like followers of Jesus, and at the same time not actually be a follower of Jesus. Judas had it all. He was with Jesus. He had, had a respectable ministry with Jesus, the team accountant. Judas had everything. He may have followed Jesus with his feet wherever he went, but he never followed Jesus with his heart. He may have been following Jesus around with the other disciples, but he never followed Jesus with his heart. Jesus condescended. Jesus left Heaven came to earth, became a man in order to save men, women, and children. Judas was this close. Judas was, was, was there, but he just didn't get it. He didn't see it. He didn't follow Jesus. You see, the foot washing, the condescension of the foot washing was incredible. But more astounding was what it pointed to hours later. The God-man would condescend to the point that his very creation would nail him to the cross and murder him. The foot washing points to the ultimate heart washing that the cross represented. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us our sins and to bring us to God. Now, friend, do you know Jesus? Do you know him? You're not here by accident. Remember, you're never here by accident. If you're in this room right now and you don't yet follow Jesus, that's my greatest prayer for you today. Would you follow Jesus, not with your feet into a church service, but would you follow Jesus with your heart and give him everything as your Lord and Savior, turning from your sins, acknowledging 
that Jesus died the death you deserve to die? Have you trusted in Christ to save you? That's what makes you a Christian. There's nothing you can do. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You could do every righteous act. But being a good person, if there is such a thing, can't save you from the fact that all of us were born in sin and all of us have continued in our sin. You can serve in every ministry. You can give generously. And yet all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Each and every one of us. From birth to death. We need God's intervention, his blood. Only his death can free us from bondage. Jesus would die, and three days later, he would rise from the dead. Jesus is our only hope in life and in death. And friends, that's a great hope. That brings us joy in the darkness. Jesus washed the disciples' feet, prefiguring the greatest condescension. And now he's going to refer to foot washing and give us an example of what our character now, our character now as a church needs to be as he's died, resurrected, and has ascended into heaven. And as we wait for him to return, what is our lives to look like? Well, he tells us what our character should reflect and to be like. And that's the fourth point, the fourth, fourth section in our text today, character. Verses 12 through 17. Confidence, condescension, confusion, and fourthly, character. I'll read all the way from verses 12 through 17. Look at those words. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Verse 17. If you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. Again, the disciples don't really understand what's happening here. At least not fully. They grasp a little. They'll grasp a whole lot more after the cross and then after the resurrection. Everything will begin to click. Hindsight is 2020. What they're witnessing is an example of true humility and service. The language is figurative in verse 14. It's not a command to literally wash another's feet. Praise the Lord for that, right? If so, we would have to set up a foot washing station here as you enter the ballroom. We'd have to scrub each other's toes. If that's what this means, I'm going to have to ask some of you to pre-wash your feet before coming next week. You know who you are. This is why we study the cultural context. It's important to know the customs of the day. This is an illustration of a spiritual reality. And Jesus says it's also a model of our service. It's what our character needs to look like. And Jesus sets the bar of humility really high, doesn't he? Really, really high. Something even a Jewish servant could not do. Foot washing. Now, we may not get the towels out here in our service or in our community groups, but Jesus doesn't let us off the hook of humble service. He shows us the most humiliating service here in the foot washing and then the cross. 
No, our way is to follow his way. It's the way of the towel. It's the way of the cross. Jesus says, stop it. Disciples, stop arguing about who's the greatest. Stop arguing about who's the greatest. Instead, you be the lowest. You're asking the wrong question. Instead, ask, what does distinctly Christian service look like? What are the lowly things you can do? That's what Jesus is saying here. How do you be more like Jesus? Well, you serve in lowly ways. Meals don't cook themselves. Houses don't clean themselves. Children don't raise themselves. The sick and disabled can't care for themselves. People without vehicles can't drive themselves. And so we serve families. We serve our friends. We serve our not yet friends. We serve those who've hurt us. We serve cross Culturally, we serve across gender lines. We serve across generationally. We serve across family status lines. We serve babies. We serve kids. We serve tweens. We serve teens. We serve one another. We serve the elderly. There is no VIP section in this church. We've got to get that. There's no VIP section in the, in the church. There's no passport, no earthly passport better than another earthly passport. There's no job better than another job. There's no ministry better than another ministry. We have the whole body, right? The church is one body. We are all parts of that same body. There's no VIP section in Christianity or in this church. Just imagine for a minute. If we all served everybody, if we all served those who are not like us, if we all served the lowly, if we all served the hurting, if we considered ourselves as the lowly and went about our service, imagine what our church would look like if we served each other in lowly ways. Here's a question, maybe a convicting question I want you to ask yourself this week or even now. If everyone in our church was serving like me, what would our church look like? Let me ask it again. If everyone in our church was serving like me, what would our church look like? With that question in mind, let me give us three big picture ways we can wash another's feet in conclusion. Three applications, three ways we can serve. Number one, we can live a life of condescension, not competition. Live a life of condescension, not competition. C.S. Lewis in his classic book, Mere Christianity, points out that pride is by nature competitive. Listen to these words. He writes, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer, cleverer, or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Tim Keller puts it more succinctly, pride is the pleasure of being more than the next person. Church, this is an exhausting exercise. Competing with one another is exhausting. Keeping busy trying to fill our emptiness with comparing and boasting. Instead, how can we serve one another in the church? Instead of competing for roles, let's do whatever needs to get done, even and especially the lowly roles. Note that Jesus doesn't ask the disciples to wash his feet in return. 
He washes Peter's feet. He doesn't ask anyone to wash his feet. We would have no problem with that, would we? Sure, I'll stand in line to wash Jesus' feet. He's worthy. But Jesus doesn't tell us to do that here, does he? He tells us to wash one another's feet. No discrimination. The people you love and the people you don't love so much. We're not competing with each other to look great. We honor God by doing what's great in his eyes. This also means being open about our failures. Bowing out of the competition means we follow James' advice and we confess our sins to one another. In fact, instead of competing to be great, James tells us we're to share how we're not so great. It's a complete reversal of the world's way of living and thinking. Instead of trying to look great, the Bible tells us to admit that we're not so great after all and to confess our sins to one another, to admit our failures, to admit our weakness, to admit our sin, no matter what it may be. There's a story from the Great Awakening, this time of revival in North America, a time when people were coming to Christ at rapid rates, especially in the Northeast couple hundred years ago, one day, the, the most prominent pastor and theologian in all of North America during that time, Jonathan Edwards, maybe the most prominent theologian in the history of North America, Edwards was leaving, leading a prayer meeting. He was leading a prayer meeting with 800 men present. And during the meeting, a woman sent a message in private asking the men to pray for her husband who was unloving and prideful. Edwards, hearing that that man was present, Edwards got up and read that entire letter to the whole assembly of 800 men. What he did next was fascinating. He then asked for the man whose wife had written the letter to raise his hand so they could pray for him. And do you know what happened? 300 men raised their hands. Each man convicted of his sin. Each man realizing they could have been more loving, more caring. Church, we need to be honest about our weaknesses, about our sin, even our church's weaknesses. Redeemer Church, we have many ways to grow as a church. One way to do this is to cheer on other churches. It's to pray for other churches. Let us never be guilty as a church of speaking poorly of another church that preaches the gospel. Let it never be said of us. Let it be said of us that we are encouraging of other gospel-preaching churches and that we pray for them often. If they preach the gospel, let's commend them. Let's pray for them. Let's praise God for them. Let's ask God to plant more of them. Even here on Shakeside Road, let there be many churches all around us. It's not a competition. That's why I led the program of, for Pastor Jim's going away celebration at Fellowship with other leaders in this city. It's why I spoke at the 50th anniversary of the United Christian Church of Dubai uh, several weeks ago. It's not a competition. Oh Lord, may you bring revival to the church down the street. What if we prayed that? That the other gospel preaching churches around us would bear even more fruit than we are. Because we're all in this together. We condescend. We don't compete. 
Lord, forgive me and forgive any of us for any critical words we've ever said about one another or about other churches here in this city. Let us grow in our humility. Number two, a second takeaway from this text, let's be others-focused and not self-focused. Let's be others-focused. In Tim Keller's sermon on self-forgetfulness, he shares C.S. Lewis's thoughts on what we'd notice if we ever met a truly humble person. So a, a second C.S. Lewis quote, I think this will help us. Listen to this. Lewis writes, We would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. This is him speaking of a humble person. You would never leave thinking they were humble. They would not be always telling us they were a nobody because the person you keep saying they're a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing you would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence, on this, listen to this, because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. Let me repeat that last line again. Gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. Lewis is saying, stop thinking about yourself so much. Spend less time in front of the mirror, less time planning your holidays, less me time and more time for others. Certainly rest, but there's a certain kind of restlessness we should have for others' good. Notice in the upper room, humility is unannounced. You see that? Jesus doesn't stand up in the front of the room. He doesn't have a pulpit there. He doesn't say, men, I shall now be humble. In fact, I'm about to be the most humble one that you've ever seen. No one writes a book and titles it Humility and How I Achieved It. You just can't do it. It's not humility, is it? Redeemer Church, just do it. I charged us in the beginning of Ramadan to reach out to our Muslim neighbors and friends. Ramadan may be ending, but Eid has arrived. Are you yet to reach out to your Muslim neighbors? Are you thinking of ways you can bless the church family during your time off? Humility doesn't discriminate. Is God calling you to serve someone you really don't want to serve? Maybe someone who's hurt you. Maybe someone with a different passport than you. If Jesus can wash Judas' feet, we can get to work. We can write an edifying note to one of our church members. We can reach out to Namrtha about serving with Redeemer Kids. We could join the logistics team and help set up or tear down this room. We can offer to teach someone English by being a language partner. We can make a meal for a family. We could send a gift. We can house someone who needs a place to stay. Or we can simply share a meal with someone we wouldn't normally share a meal with. Or reach out to someone who's not been reached out to yet. And of course, we could go on and on and on and on with this list. I don't know what it means for you. But what does humble service mean for you even this next week? And number three, we'll close with this. Number three, talk to God on behalf of others. A third way we can serve, the best way we can serve, we could talk to God about others. 
It's the reverse of slander, isn't it? We're not talking to a person about another person. We're talking to God about people. What does foot washing look like today? It looks like us taking our precious time and committing it to others by praying for them. Is there anything greater we can do for our brothers and sisters in Christ than this? Yes, we can pray for ourselves. Yes, we should pray for ourselves. And I imagine that you do pray for yourself if you're a Christ follower. But imagine how our community would be transformed if we prayed more for others. The best act of service we can do right now for our friends Nathaniel and Talitha is to pray for them. Those of us that know that we want to do something, we want to be the fix-it person. But sometimes there's no equation to fix it, this side of glory. Regardless of what's happened, it's always our best action to pray. If you want to help, are you praying regularly for our church and our church's members? In our cluttered days full of work and social media, family obligations, and even ministry, have we forgotten to pray? Have we forgotten to pray for one another? Have we failed to pray for each other? Well, verse 17 tells us our outcome if we serve others in the way Jesus served. Look again at verse 17, the very end of our passage. If you know these things, okay, that's good. It's good to know these things. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It's one thing to know how to serve, but another thing to actually serve. It's one thing to know you should pray, but blessed are those who actually pray. Redeemer Church, let's remember Christ who condescended and died for us. And let's go from this place serving others in a way that points people to his life and to his death. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your love. Oh, would we never cease to marvel at the death of Christ for our sins. Would we not look at this passage half-heartedly, but with full hearts, ready to serve humbly and lowly in whatever way you're calling us to? Would our service model Christ's service to one another and to the world? And Father, we pray for other gospel-preaching churches even today, these bastions of, of good news throughout our cities. Would Christ be at the center of all of us and all that we do? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.